Hey guys, today's episode is going to be different than any other episode I've ever done because today I'm going to be telling you a, a series of short stories. Now these aren't all positive stories. In fact, they're very, very tragic. There is a loss of human life in each one of them. So listener discretion is advised. So stick around and I'll tell you about some of North Carolina's disasters. Welcome to the NC Everything Podcast, a weekly show where I talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Now, I know that's uh, some upbeat music for, for the content of this episode. It's going to be a, a pretty sad and tragic episode. If you're new to the show, my, my theme music is usually upbeat and kind of adventurous and cheery, and uh, that's definitely not, not uh, consistent with this content. But I'm running a, a little behind, and it's uh, hard for me to, to pick different music on the fly like that. But anyway, if you are new to the show, welcome, and I'm glad to have you. Um, this isn't my normal setup. Um, typically, I have one topic, and I'll, I'll stick with it. And um, Here lately, I've been doing maybe two different things in, a, in an episode. As far as my returning listeners, welcome back, and uh, you know exactly how my, my normal episodes go. And I'm going to explain why, why I did this episode here in just a minute. But first, whether you're new or returning, uh, don't forget, if you liked the episode, you can go to www.dnceverythingpodcast.com and listen to all my past episodes. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, if you can, wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Now, that's uh, enough of the self-promotional stuff right now because uh, I, I got a lot to go through. Now, like I said in the intro, um, listener discretion is advised on this episode. I'm going to cover some some pretty tragic events, um, a, a lot of loss of life, like I said, and uh, none of these deaths are very peaceful, I don't think. Um, I feel like they're not. Anyway, if you have young ears around or you, know, you just don't like hearing sad stories, uh, I would definitely maybe consider listening to another episode. But before I get into the the disaster stuff, I have not an amendment. I have an addition to my last episode. Um, if you didn't listen, in my last episode, I covered Bath and Newburn. Now, a few days before that episode even aired, I got an email from Mark from Richlands. And now Richlands is over in Onslow County. And he had a few suggestions and coincidentally, one of the things he suggested was the curse on the village of Bath. Now, he had no way of knowing that, uh, that I was actually about to launch an episode about Bath. And in all my research, I didn't find this story, but I really wanted to add it. So I decided to put it at the beginning of this episode, since it's not a very long story. So if you didn't listen to those episodes on Newburn and Bath, um, Bath became kind of a, a pirate hangout. Um, and I also covered that in uh, my Blackbeard episode, but Blackbeard, he kind of hid out in Bath and his pirate buddies would come and they'd have parties out on Ocracoke Island. So as you can imagine, Bath became kind of a party town. Um, yes, there were some pirates there, but there was, you know, loose women, I guess you could say a lot of drinking, gambling and stuff that a, a devout holy man would, would certainly not appreciate. So, enter the traveling evangelist, George Whitefield. 
Now, he was a Calvinist evangelist, and he was kind of well-known in the colonies for traveling around and, and preaching some really strong sermons. And his sermons, which they called the Great Awakening, were known to be very inspirational and moving. But, as you can guess, um, people like pirates and gamblers and drinkers, well, those were his, his main targets. Well, it didn't take him very long to, to hear about the ongoings in Bath, and it didn't take him very long to decide to make the trip down there. Since he was pretty well known through the colonies, when he showed up in Bath, he was met by a group of people who told him to turn around and get on out of there. Well, Whitefield, he didn't try to fight it and he didn't try to save everybody there. He turned around and was prepared to leave. But another thing about Whitefield, he liked to leave a mark on people. Like, for example, he would travel around with a coffin in his wagon. That was his coffin. And he wanted to show people that he was prepared for death at any time. So, you know, he's kind of flashy. So before he rode out of bath, he stopped his wagon and climbed on the back of it and took off his shoe. He started waving it around at the crowd and proceeded to put a curse on the town. It's written that Whitefield said to the crowd, If a place won't listen to the word, you shake the dust of the town off your feet and the town shall be cursed. I have put a curse on this town for a hundred years. And with that, he rode away and never came back. Well, as some of you may know, the town of Washington, North Carolina was established and all the, all the colonial uh, ongoings were moved to Washington. And so the town of Bath kind of went on the back burner and started dwindling and eventually it faded down into just a small village. The thing was, the, the thing that I found out from uh, researching this story is that the fall of Bath, I guess if you want to call it a fall, the fall of Bath happened not very long after Whitefield put the curse on the town. And so many believed that the reason Bath uh, kind of dwindled and fell apart was because of Whitefield. And today that's known as the Bath curse. I hope you can forgive the short story before the content, but uh, I thought it was necessary to put it in. And Mark, thank you for sending that in to me. Now let's get into the main content. I do want to say that the, the way this episode came to, came to pass was that I got a suggestion from Rip from Smithfield, and he suggested I do an episode on the Catch Me Eye explosion. Now, if that sounds like a weird name, um, that's going to be the first uh, segment I do, so just hang in there. But I, I did research on that explosion, and I mean, it's, it's an interesting story, but it's a little short, you know, and so I decided to look up um, some other accidents or disasters and one thing led to another and so in this episode um let's see i have a coal mining accident a train wreck a plane wreck a shipwreck i have a fire um a tornado or several tornadoes and a hurricane and i, I think that's it now when i searched you know shipwreck in north carolina a lot came up same with plane crashes same with fires same with hurricanes as you may guess um, my criteria for picking the ones I wanted to talk about, unfortunately, was the number of lives lost. I know that sounds horrible, but I figured if I was going to do, do disasters, I wanted to kind of stick to the worst. Um, and there are a lot of um, shipwrecks and plane crashes and train wrecks in our state. Um, you can definitely look those up, but I'm not trying to leave anybody out when I only picked just one from uh, each of these categories. So let's go ahead and get into it. This is the Catch Me Eye Explosion. 
Now, Catch Me Eye was the name of a, a popular uh, commercial complex down in Selma. The, the way they described it in the article, it sounds like our uh, modern-day strip malls. But this is going to be 1942. And Catch Me Eye was at the, in, uh, at the intersection of US 301 and US 70. Oh, and as far as the shopping center went, um, there was a tavern, a cabin, and a service station, and there was a hotel nearby, and it was all kind of right here around this intersection. I think there's a, a few more shops and stuff, but um, that was the main bulk of it. So, around 1.30 a.m. on March 7th, 1942, about 300 feet north of Catch Me Eye, a car that was driven by a Miss Minnie Lewis Rear ends a military truck. Now inside the car with Miss Lewis was her husband, their two children, and two Marines. All but one of the children were injured in the wreck, but nobody got killed. The truck that Miss Lewis hit was headed to Fort Bragg, and it was loaded with 30,000 pounds of explosives. Now the articles say that it had uh, grenades and gunpowder, but I'm sure there was a, a little bit of everything on that truck. Well, it wasn't long before the truck and the car both catch on fire. Traffic comes to a halt. Now, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of traffic to be out there at 1.30 in the morning. I mean, Catch Me Eye isn't a, a very big place. But apparently, it didn't take long before there was kind of a crowd around this fire. The fire department from Smithfield, they show up, and so do uh, some other fire departments in the surrounding areas. And they tell the crowd, naturally, to get back. Um, apparently, they were having trouble keeping the crowd back. But eventually, everybody did back up, just not very far. They backed up far enough for a fire. They didn't back up far enough for a, an explosion. Well, at exactly 2.57, a car decided that it was going to ignore the firefighters telling everybody to get back, and it was just going to drive right around the burning truck. And it was at this very moment that everything on that truck exploded. The whole entire Catch Me Eye complex was destroyed. A hotel across the street called the Hotel Tarleton was also destroyed. There was a gas station nearby called Luke Capps Filling Station, and it was it was destroyed. And they said after the fact, the only thing left was like these uh, gnarled metal shards of a gas pump. The explosion left a crater in the ground, and it was described as being 20 to 30 feet deep and as long as a railroad car. They would eventually find debris two and a half miles from the explosion site. Windows were shattered at the Edgerton Memorial Methodist Church in Selma. The Selma cotton mill lost 900 window panes. There were even some windows shattered in Smithfield, and that was three miles away. They said that you could hear the blast 40 miles away, and when people 40 miles away heard this explosion... They just knew that the Germans had invaded or the Japanese had began an air raid. So naturally, the phones went crazy, and officials, they uh, spent a significant amount of time trying to convince people that America was not under attack. In the end, six people were killed and 50 were injured. Prison work crews were sent in to take care of the crater that was in the middle of the highway, and by 3 p.m. the next day, they had it full. Another crazy thing is the Highway Patrol estimated that more than 200,000 people visited the accident scene in the next few days. The incident would eventually be investigated by the Charleston, South Carolina Ordnance Department, and the investigation lasted for a few months. 
And at the end of it, the federal government decided to give $10,000 to the estates of all six victims. That $10,000 didn't come until 17 years after the explosion. And that is the Catch Me Eye explosion. Thank you, Rip, for sending that in. Now, the article I read for this segment will be in the show notes, but I warn you, in the article is a link to a video. Now, the video is not graphic or anything. I mean, it's disturbing. Somebody went down there with whatever recording device they had, and they kind of, you know, scanned the whole area. And so you, you see a lot of twisted metal and debris. But the reason I'm warning you about the video is there's this music in it. It takes you, it's a YouTube video. And the music in it is really odd. It's strangely upbeat and almost inspirational. And like I said at the beginning, my music doesn't match this content. But the music in this video is just, it's really, really strange. All right. The next disaster I'm going to tell you about is the Imperial Food Products Fire that was in Hamlet, North Carolina. Now, I put Rip's suggestion first because that's priority. This is number two because, in my opinion, um, of all the things I covered, this is probably the worst one. So I wanted to go ahead and, and knock it out. All right. So like I said, it takes place in Hamlet. And Hamlet used to be kind of a booming town because of the railroad, but by the 1970s, it was kind of waning, you know, but that made it a, a huge target for businesses who were looking for cheap labor. Now, keep that in mind. Now, I'll introduce you to Emmett Rowe. Emmett Rowe was a restaurant worker, and I guess you could say he's a self-made man because he kind of worked his way up to owning his own chicken factory in Moosick, Pennsylvania. Well, eventually, his workers joined a union, and safety inspectors started coming in and looking at his plant. Well, every crooked businessman knows that you can't make money if you're being safe, so Roe bounced out of there. He found an ice cream plant way down south in Hamlet, North Carolina. Now, the thing about North Carolina, well, it didn't have a union, and because of low staffing, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, business regulation and, and safety oversight down here. So he bought the ice cream plant and he turned it into a chicken plant. Now, what I read was it, uh, this plant, they pre-fried chicken for, I guess, grocery stores and stuff like that. Um, so this place was full of just these humongous fryers. Now, all the articles I read say that Roe was a, a horrible boss, not to be cliche, but um, he was terrible. He treated his employees like crap, and if they complained, he would fire them. But because of unemployment and, and the poverty that was in Hamlet, a lot of these employees would just suck it up to keep making a little money. Well, on the morning of September 3rd, 1991, at 8.30, a hydraulic line broke near a 25-foot-long deep fryer. And eventually, the hydraulic fluid coming out of this line caught on fire. When it caught on fire, this um, hydraulic fluid... It sent what they described as a fireball of hydrocarbon through the plant. Now, the thing about hydrocarbon smoke is um, it can disable somebody after just a few breaths. And um, some of you know, I used to be a volunteer firefighter for several years. Um, that's kind of why I know about this. Um, I was on my way out of a house on fire one day. Um, we were evacuating the house and I had my breathing apparatus on, you know, and it's, I'm breathing air. And my hose got caught on a doorknob, and just for a second, it ripped that mask off my face. And I got a breath of that black smoke that was inside that house, and it physically hurt. 
Um, it felt like somebody had hit me in the chest with a hammer. But I can tell you that that smoke that I inhaled wasn't near as bad as this. Anyway, when the fireball started moving through the plant, it, um, it ignited the gas lines, so gas lines across the ceiling started to explode. Eventually, not very long after, the lights went out, so the whole plant that didn't have very many windows in the first place was pitched into darkness. At this time, there was about 90 employees inside the plant, and all of them were trying to get out. As you may guess, several people were trampled. Now, a lot of the employees did make it to a door, but they found that the doors were padlocked shut. Well, as an impromptu plan B, some of the employees went into a nearby cooler. They had no real way of knowing that this cooler would be a death trap. Now, some of the employees did make it out because the main door in the building was unlocked. And I read that a few of the doors, um, the employees were able to bust them open. And the firefighters, when they showed up, they were able to bust a few open. Now, last thing before I start talking about the fatalities... Um, this plant didn't have a sprinkler system, it didn't have an evacuation plan, it didn't have marked exit doors, and like I said, most of the doors were either locked or blocked by something. So remember the cooler that the people ran into to, to get away from the smoke? They found 12 people dead inside that cooler, and three others were found just outside of it. Now like I said, the fire department eventually showed up to, to help out, but the response was greatly delayed. And that was because phones inside the plant, quote, could not be used, unquote. And I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if they were unplugged or um, they were broke. I, I don't know. But the article says that they could not be used. And so Emmett Rowe's son, who was at the plant that day, drove down to the fire station and told them that the factory was on fire. He didn't even mention, though, that there were workers still inside. Then you got the fire chief. Now, he's just written as Fire Chief Fuller. Well, the Dobbins Heights Fire Department, who was nearby, offered help several times, but Chief Fuller kept turning them down. This was despite the fact that the Dobbins Heights Fire Department was five minutes from the plant. Now, Dobbins Heights was made up of mostly African-American volunteers, and most of the workers inside the plant were also African-American so you can kind of see where the, the allegations are going to lead about Chief Fuller and Emmett Rowe. All in all, 25 were killed and 54 were injured. All 25 died from smoke inhalation. The sad part is that when the firefighters did make their way into the building, there were footprints on the floor behind several of the locked doors. It was obvious that some of the employees went to that door and tried and failed to get out of the building. Now, if you're not ill enough at this whole situation by now, uh, think about this. The plant had never received not a single safety inspection, not on the state level, not on the federal level, and not by any fire department. The fire chief later said that he didn't have the resources to inspect the businesses in his jurisdiction, and OSHA just didn't have the manpower to do all the inspections. Like I said, they were understaffed. And I get that. I get that OSHA is understaffed. But I also read that there had been two fires at this location already, and OSHA still had never came up, uh, came out for a follow-up or anything like that. I mean, it it sounds really hinky if uh, if you hadn't guessed that already. Now OSHA claimed that the reason they had never came out to inspect was because they never received any complaints. But 
if you've been paying attention, you know why they never received any complaints. And Emmett Rowe knew that OSHA wasn't going to come out. That's why he didn't think twice about locking his doors. And as far as his locked doors, um, one, ar- one article I read said it was to keep flies out. And a few, other, a few other articles I read said that he locked the doors to keep the thieves out. And this wasn't a one-time thing. Um, employees later said that he regularly locked the doors during work hours. Well, after the fire, the state of North Carolina fined Imperial $800,000 for 83 safety violations. The factory, as you may guess, was permanently closed and 215 em- employees lost their jobs. Which, that might have been a blessing in disguise. Um, I don't want to speak for those people, but um, that it sounded pretty rough. Eventually, there would be two separate monuments put on this site. And the reason there's there's two monuments was because the families of the workers, well, they wanted Jesse Jackson to come and, and do the memorial. Well, Mayor Abby Covington, he didn't want Jackson nowhere around there. And so they ended up having two different memorial services, and they unveiled two uh, almost identical monuments. In 2001, they bulldozed the factory down. As far as Crooked Emmett Rowe goes, well, he pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, and he was sentenced to 19 years and 11 months in prison. But he became eligible for parole in March of 1994, and he walked out of prison after serving just under four years. Now, this story kind of hits home with me because, like I said, I, I used to be a volunteer firefighter, And for the past 17 years, I've worked in manufacturing. And, I mean, it's essentially a factory just like this. Um, We don't do chicken, but I see some of the same problems here in the place I work. And um, my management isn't this neglectful, but um, I know what it's like to work in a factory and see certain things that just rub you the wrong way. They don't make sense. Um, Safety hazards. And for me, being on the fire department, um, it's even worse when I see a safety hazard because I know what may happen or what could happen, I guess. Um, and I'm not going to go on a big soapbox here, but if you work in a place like this, if you see something, say something. Now, let's, uh, let's move on to a coal mining disaster. And yes, uh, North Carolina did have coal mines. I was just as surprised as some of you probably are right now. But this story is called the Coal Glen Mine Disaster. So we're going on back to May 27th, 1925. And Coal Glen Mine was in Farmville, North Carolina. And that's in southern Chatham County. Now, in Chatham County, they have the Deep River. I mean, that's literally the name of it, if you don't know. Um, It doesn't actually look very deep in the few spots that I cross it when I'm traveling around. But it's called the Deep River And they found coal in that river in 1820. Well, in 1921, the Carolina Coal Company built a coal mine on the site of the old Farmville Village. And this was on the the Chatham County side of the Deep River. This is about two miles east of the Cumnock Mine. And I'll bring the Cumnock Mine up again in a second. But there was a a four-mile strip with three, three coal mines on it. And that was Egypt, Gulf, and Farmville. That Egypt mine, um, that was the Cumnock mine that I mentioned just a second ago. Now, these mines, um, they were known for the volatile, volatile gases. And I think volatile gas is pretty prominent in most coal mines. 
But these mines here, um, they had several explosions over the years that was almost as bad as this one. So here we go. At 9.40 in the morning on May 27th, there was an explosion in the mine. And it rocked the town of Farmville. People around there could tell right away that the, the explosion came from the Deep River coal field. And everybody knew that there was miners about a thousand feet underground in that area. Nobody really knows for sure what caused the explosion, but they think it was um, from either coal dust or natural gas. About 30 minutes after the first explosion, a second explosion was heard. And about 30 minutes after that, a third one. And I read that they, I don't know who they are, but they didn't think the coal was very combustible because it was uh, soft and slow burning. And because of this obvious misjudgment, there wasn't a whole lot of preventative safety measures in place for this kind of accident in the mine. And furthermore, because of, uh, they say, lack of accidents, there wasn't a whole lot of rescue equipment on hand either. Now, I want to stop there for a second. My notes say, you know, because they're, the rescue equipment had never been needed, they didn't have it. But I also read that there were several explosions in the mine as bad as this one. So you can't have it both ways. Either you have accidents down there like this one, or you don't have that many accidents. Anyway, everybody um, around came to, to offer some kind of help. Six miners were pulled out of the mine alive, and by the time the sun went down, 5,000 people were kind of waiting around to see if they could find anybody else. Experts from the State and Federal Bureau of Mines showed up by 9 a.m. the next morning, and they came from Thomas, West Virginia and Birmingham, Alabama. The thing was, they actually didn't know how many people were in the mine. The records showed that 59 men had entered the mine to work that day, but it was reported that 71 miners' lamps were out. Now, they did recover six bodies uh, pretty quickly. And whether or not this next part is true, I don't know. But Mr. William Hill, who worked at the Cumnock Mine, told the families that where they found those um, six bodies, the air was clear. And so the families got kind of hopeful that maybe the men were alive, but they were just, you know, uh, stuck underground. Sadly, nobody else came out of the mine alive. By the end of it, 53 men had died in the worst mining disaster in North Carolina history. It took five days to get all the bodies out of the mine. Now, if you look this up, you might see it um, uh, recorded as the Cumnock Mine Disaster. And that's because the Cumnock Mine was pretty close by. But this is actually the Coal Glen Mine Explosion. And now, let's talk about a hurricane. And... If you've been in this state for a long time or you've done your research, um, you know that we, we're not as bad as some places, but we have our fair share of hurricanes. And so it was really hard for me to decide on a hurricane. Um, again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I, I was looking at loss of life. And so it was down to Hurricane Hazel and Hurricane Floyd. And as far as loss of life, not just in North Carolina, but um, throughout uh, Floyd's path, Floyd did win out on that one. And so I'll unofficially call Hurricane Floyd the worst hurricane in North Carolina history. Um, but like I said, Hazel is, is right there with it. So for this segment, we're looking at September 1999. On September 7th, 
A tropical depression was recognized over the Atlantic Ocean about halfway between Africa and the Leeward Islands. Now, the Leeward Islands are just south of Puerto Rico. The next day, winds increased to 40 miles an hour and the depression was upgraded to a tropical storm and that storm was named Floyd. Now, Floyd continued uh, getting stronger and on September 10th, it got hurricane status. Now, Floyd did pass to a, a section that had uh, like um, upper level winds that kind of weakened it. But after it made it through this little area, um, it, it started getting stronger really fast and became a major hurricane on September 12th. Well, it kept getting stronger and stronger. And on September 13th, it was a Category 4 storm. It went through the Bahamas on the 14th and then turned north toward North Carolina. On Wednesday, September 15th, the strong winds finally made it to Wilmington. But by this time, the storm had already dropped six inches of rain. That same day that Wilmington started getting some wind, the eye was just off the east coast of Florida and heading toward Cape Fear, North Carolina. Landfall for Hurricane Floyd occurred at Cape Fear at 2.30 a.m. on Thursday, September 16, 1999. Wind speeds varied from 110 to 140 miles per hour. A lot of the homes in Cape Fear were destroyed by this crazy wind and waves up to 10 foot tall. By the time Floyd had passed by, 537,000 homes and businesses lost power. It was reported that over 2,200 power poles were damaged and 465 miles of power line were down. And the storm dropped between 12 and 20 inches of rain. Now, if you're not familiar with hurricanes, um, the storm, they're, they're horrible, especially this one. But the storm leaving your state isn't the end of it. Because that storm, it'll drop rain um, way inland, you know, sometimes all the way to the foothills. Well, then all that rainfall starts making its way back out to the coast. And then you get a second wave of problems. As all the rain came flowing down east, millions of farm animals were drowned. 80,000 structures were damaged or destroyed from the flooding. Because of high water, a 100-mile section of I-95 had to be closed, and three sections of Interstate 40 between Wilmington and Benson were flooded and closed. Because of this storm, President Bill Clinton declared the eastern half of North Carolina a disaster area. So now you've had the terrible hurricane, and you've had the terrible flooding, but there's still something else. You see, with all this flooding, um, that water moves everything around. And so now freshwater areas are full of sewage and farm waste and all kinds of, of chemicals from farms. And, and uh, then you got the oil and chemicals from cars and trucks and all the vehicles that are now underwater. And all those dead farm animals are just floating around. They estimated that 2.4 million chickens, 100,000 hogs, and 500,000 turkeys were killed by flooding. So now your drinking water is uh, pretty scarce, but then all these dead animals attract flies and these flies don't mind drinking that nasty water. And so even if you're trying to avoid it, they drink the nasty water and then they spread all that nasty bacteria over to you. And so North Carolina sent a bunch of portable incinerators to come out and, and destroy all these uh, dead animals before the, the flies could hatch. 
And so you can see it's one thing after another when a, a hurricane like this comes through. Well, Floyd ended up killing 36 people in North Carolina and 57 across the U.S. The total damages were $6.5 billion. And since I stepped into natural disasters um, for the hurricane, I want to go ahead and talk about the tornado outbreak of 2011. Between April 14th and April 16th of 2011, 178 tornadoes touched down. 30 of these tornadoes were in North Carolina. And five of these tornadoes were rated as an F3, which means they had wind faster than 136 miles an hour. Now, like I said, this wasn't just a, to a tornado or two. This was an outbreak of tornadoes. And it started in, o in Oklahoma and then started moving east. Now, a few days leading up to April 16th, um, there was a lot of indications that North Carolina was looking at a, a really serious weather event. And this is going to be a short segment, but I'm, I'm just going to go through some of these tornadoes. Um, I don't think I covered all 30 that touched down in North Carolina, but I'm just going to run you down these tornadoes. Um, so April 16th, 253, a tornado uh, touched down in Sanford. And it destroyed the, the Lowe's Home Improvement there. And I remember going through that area um, later, that, later that year on the way down to the coast. And that area where Lowe's Home Improvement was was still a closed site. And they've already cleaned up everything. It was just a, a flat parking lot, really. But anyway, this one that destroyed Lowe's, after it went through uh, Sanford, it kind of turned northeast. And it started heading toward Holly Springs in Wake County. Eventually, it would hit the Stony Brook Mobile Home Park off Brentwood, Brentwood Road in Raleigh. It went another 65 miles before it dissipated just on the other side of Roanoke Rapids. Around this same time, the dark clouds were getting, uh, starting to form over Hope County, and within 15 minutes, an F3 tornado touched down. It would end up carving a path 800 yards wide. Another tornado, an F2, killed three people as it moved toward Clinton, which is in Sampson County. Then there was another F3, and it hit it hit Bertie County. This one killed 12 people and injured 58. There was an F1 in Salisbury and an F0 in Monroe. And an F0, the best I could tell, um, a tornado did touch down. It was just a, a real minor one, but it, it counts. Um, and I'm sure it's still pretty scary. There was an F1 in Glen Raven in Alamance County. That's not far from me. An F2 touched down in Roxborough. An F1 touched down in Roland down in Robeson County. An F3 in Rayford. An F1 in Barker 10 Mile. Another F2 touched down in White Oak. An F1 in Pine Level. An F2 in Bladenboro. An F2 in Lucama. An F2 in Roanoke Rapids. An F0 in Goldsboro. Another F0 in Clarkton, an F3 east of Goldsboro, an F1 in Whiteville, F0 in Kenansville, F2 in Hargett, uh, Hargett's Crossroad, which is in Jones County, an F0 in Robersonville, an F0 in Vanceboro, an F0 in Bath, an F3 in Jacksonville, an F2 in Arapahoe, an F1 in Columbia, an F1 in Harbinger, which is in Currituck County, and an F1 in Duck in Dare County. And at the end of it, this tornado outbreak would leave 24 dead in North Carolina. My next one is a plane crash. 
and this was Piedmont Airlines Flight 22. It would be June 19, 1967. Flight 22 was a Boeing 727. On the night of June 19, 1967, visibility was about four miles. It was kind of hazy, they said. Flight 22 took off from runway 16 at Asheville Municipal Airport that night. Now, the tower told Flight 22 to maintain runway heading uh, until reaching 5,000 feet. And what that means is, whatever geographical direction the runway is, um, the plane is supposed to, um, supposed to climb, but stay on that geographical direction until they get to 5,000 feet. Now, the reason they done this is because there was a Cessna 310 that was planning to land on runway 16, and so they were just trying to keep these planes separated. The Cessna was owned by the Lancier Company, and they were on a, a business flight from Charlotte to Asheville. And they had three people on board. Well, while Flight 22 was still taking off, the pilot of the Cessna reported, quote, 2-1 Sierra just passed over the VOR. We're heading for the for uh, Asheville now, unquote. And 2-1 Sierra means 2-1-S. That's the last three digits of the Cessna's registration number. Well, at this point, the tower told the Cessna to descend and maintain 6,000 feet. At 11.59, the controller cleared Flight 22 to climb unrestricted up to the to the to what they call the VOR. And that pretty much just means up to where he can actually see, uh, you know, and get out of that haze. At this point, they told the Cessna that they were cleared to approach runway 16. Flight 22 was in a climbing left turn when the Cessna collided into it at 6,132 feet. Now, just before the collision, observers saw the Cessna pull up real sharp, and then uh, they hit the, the Flight 22 between the nose and the, the left forward fuselage. The Cessna disintegrated on impact. Flight 22 continued straight for a second or two, and then they quickly fell to the earth. They would ultimately crash near the intersection of I-26 and Highway 64 at Orr's Camp in Hendersonville. So, what exactly happened up there? Well, nobody really knows for sure, but the National Transportation Safety Board investigated for 14 months. And what they came up with was that the Cessna deviated from its uh, cleared flight path, which was kind of obvious. As far as why this deviation was made, um, nobody really knows. Well, in June 2006, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board agreed to reopen the, reopen the investigation. And the reason they reopened this investigation was because of a guy named Paul Houle, H-O-U-L-E. He sent in a petition that had three arguments. Argument one, the original NTSB report ignored the fact that the Cessna pilot reported his heading, which should have alerted the air traffic controller that there was going to be a problem. Number two, the NTSB report didn't even mention a fire in the cockpit ashtray that preoccupied the Flight 22 crew in the final 35 seconds before the collision. And argument three, the lead NTSB investigator of the accident was the brother of a Piedmont vice president, which certainly would be a conflict of interest. But in the end of it, 
in early 2007, the NTSB decided to uphold their findings, which was that the Cessna just deviated from its flight path and nobody knows why. I know that's really vague, but um, that's kind of the end of it. 79 people were killed in that accident. Today, there's a memorial to the victims of the crash just off Highway 64 South, uh, right there at Orr's Camp Road at the Mountain First Bank. And now I'm going to talk about a train wreck. And like uh, like all the other subjects, there's been a few train wrecks in North Carolina. But uh, again, I was trying to pick uh, what we, what would be considered the, the worst one. And the one I ended up settling on was the Rennert Railroad accident. This was December 16th, 1943. And this is going to be a, a bit of a short segment on this because there, there wasn't a whole lot of information on it. And the, the facts, the details, they're, they're pretty cut and dry. So Rennert, or Rennert, is a town um, about halfway in between Lumberton and Fayetteville. And here are the details. The story really starts out uh, right, at, right after midnight, so I'm not sure if this was on December 16th or on December 17th. Um, but the, the articles say December 16th. But anyway, shortly after midnight, the uh, Miami West Coast champion left Fayetteville and it was going south and it was running a little bit late. Um, and that uh, Miami, um, it's the word Miami with T-A in front of it. So uh, I don't know if it's Miami or uh, Miami. Actually, I like Tamiami. Um, it kind of rolls off the tongue. Anyway, about 30 minutes after the Tamiami left Fayetteville, Part of the actual railroad track underneath the train broke, and this was near uh, Raft Swamp Creek. Well, when this bit of uh, train track broke, it derailed the rear three cars on the Tamiami. So in total, the Tamiami had 18 cars, and the last three in line, um, they were derailed. Well, it took about a quarter mile to get the train to stop, and what I gather is either when it stopped or, or right after the, the cars derailed, they fell over onto the next uh, set of tracks going alongside of it. Now, train officials, they sprung into action right away. Nobody was really hurt in this accident, but uh, they got everybody off the train and they built bonfires, uh, mainly to keep everybody warm, but also to, to signal any on oncoming trains that there was a, a problem on the tracks. Well, some of the train officials, they went walking up the tracks a little bit, um, and they were going to put out noisemakers and, and flares um, and try to create a buffer so any trains coming, um, they would have plenty of time to stop, you see. But what I read was that um, they forgot to grab the noisemakers. Now, I'm not sure what these, uh, they're called noisemaker charges, um, so I don't know if it's some sort of a minor explosive device. I'm not sure what this is at all, but it said they forgot to grab them, but they did have flares. And I read two versions of this next part. Um, one of them says that one of the officials slipped and it damaged the flares where they couldn't be used. And another version um, said that the train official tried to pull out the flare when he saw an oncoming train. And at that point he slipped and, and damaged it. But either way, at 1.45 a.m., another train was coming. Now, the train that had derailed to begin with, that was the Tamiami West Coast. Um, this one was the Tamiami East Coast Champion train, so it was like a, a sister train, and it was coming down the tracks. Now, this train was taking holiday travelers north, and 
um, the so the Tamiami West was heading south, and this Tamiami East was heading north. And the passengers on board of the the Tamiami East, you're gonna get tired of hearing me say Tamiami in a few minutes, but the the passengers on this new train, um, they included uh, civilians and military. Well, it says that the the Tamiami East saw the derailed Tamiami West, but it was too late. And the train was traveling about 80 miles an hour when it saw the derailed train. And so when the northbound train hit the southbound train, it jumped off the tracks. And when it hit the ground, it dug a trench the length of two football fields. Well, it didn't take too long for the first car to come to a stop off the tracks. But the problem was the rest of the cars, um, that momentum, they were coming and they kept slamming into that uh, first car. Well, in that first car, that's where all the military people were. And when the following cars came crashing into that first car, it killed 47 service members. By the time the wreck was over, 74 people would be killed. Although for some reason, some argue that it was 72. All right. My last story is about a shipwreck. And of all the stories I put together for this for this episode, the, the shipwrecks were the hardest to, to narrow down on because in North Carolina, there are so many shipwrecks. And there's um, shipwrecks that have a bigger loss of life than the one I'm going to tell you about. Um, the reason I settled on this one, because it has an interesting story. And I'm not trying to make light of uh, any loss of life. But this was, uh, I guess I wanted to step back from loss of life and, and change gears just for this one. Um, so I'm going to tell you about the HMS Bounty. But first I want to say that there was a, a Royal, a Royal Navy ship called the HMS Bounty that was built in 1787. Um, that's not this one. This one is actually a replica and it was built by MGM for the movie, the 1962 movie Mutiny on the Bounty. And that movie stars uh, Marlon Brando and Richard Harris. And Richard Harris, he's, uh, for you younger listeners, he played Dumbledore in uh, Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets. And for the, the older crowd, or a little older, he played Marcus Aurelius in Gladiator. Anyway, this HMS Bounty was built just like the 1787 ship, but it was uh, enlarged. Everything was enlarged. Um, it made it easier to film on and easier to, to work with. So it was kind of a, a blowed up version of the original um, bounty. And the, the HMS name, that was just part of the name. So the original ship, HMS, was um, Her Majesty's ship. This one here, it wasn't, um, this didn't belong to the Royal Navy, obviously. The HMS was just part of a name. It wasn't an assignment, if that makes sense. I might have made that more complicated than it had to be. Anyway, this was the first large vessel built from scratch for a movie. And there had been other movies filmed on ships, but they uh, what they did was they took existing ships and, and just filmed on those. They converted it to look like whatever they wanted. This one here was actually built from scratch. And she was built at the Smith and Ruland Shipyard in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. It took 200 workers and uh, about eight months to build it. Now, another important thing, this wasn't just a set, kind of like uh, the Titanic when they filmed that. You know, they didn't... They didn't have a working ship in there, but this was a working sailing ship because they needed to move the crew from location to location. So it, it was a big ship, but it was a functional ship. Well, the bounty was launched on August 27th, 1960. 
She sailed from Lunenburg through the Panama Canal to Tahiti for filming of Mutiny on the Bounty. Well, after filming wrapped, they scheduled the ship to be burned, but Maul and Brando didn't want that, and so MGM kept the, the ship. They sent the bounty on a worldwide tour, and then it was put up at St. Saint Be- Petersburg, Florida, and it became a, a permanent tourist attraction here, and it stayed that way until the mid-1980s. During that time, it was used in an episode of Flipper that aired on December 11, 1965. It was also used in a, a 1983 film called Yellowbeard. Well, in 1986, Ted Turner became her new owner when he bought MGM. Around this time, the ship was mostly used for, for promotions, and they used it in the 1989 film Treasure Island with Charlton Heston. In 1993, Ted Turner gave the ship to the Fall River Chamber Foundation Incorporated, and they established the Tall Ship Bounty Foundation Incorporated. And so the plan was that the the HMS Bounty would spend summers in Fall River, Massachusetts, and it would spend the winters at the St. Petersburg Pier in Florida. Around this time, the ship was scheduled to to appear in a couple movies. One of them was going to be called Captain Blood, and it starred Errol Flynn, and another one was a movie about Anne Bonny, and she was a famous female pirate. But neither one of these projects ever took place. Then, in 1997... They were going to use the ship in a Steven, Steven Spielberg movie called Amistad. And that's a pretty good movie. It actually did get made, and I liked the movie. But the HMS Bounty was not in it because um, before filming started, they decided to, uh, start to film in Puerto Rico and California instead of Rhode Island. So they used a different ship. Now, during this time, um, the Bounty was used in several documentaries. And then in the mid-90s, uh, Marlon Brando, who was the star of the 1962 Mutiny on the Bounty, well, he had an idea of using the ship uh, to film some kind of project near the island that he owned in the South Pacific. However, when he found out what the weekly cost of using the ship was going to be, he backed out of the deal. Now, over the years, there was a lot of maintenance work to do to the ship, and it was getting costly. And so, on March 15th, 2001, the ship was sold to the HMS Bounty Foundation. In 2005, it was used to shoot the movie Pirates. Now, you have probably not heard of Pirates. Not many people have. But Pirates was a pornographic movie. I have not seen the movie Pirates, but I remember in 2005, um, for some reason, I remember seeing a promotional poster for it. I don't know uh, how many porn films are made every year, but I remember seeing that promoted somewhere. Now, it's kind of weird that they used it in a a porn movie, I guess, because it was around this time that it was used in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, Sponge Out of Water. Well, for the next few years, the the bounty went on tour around the world, pretty much. Um, And it, it, I think it changed hands at least one more time. But now we're in October of 2012, and it's hurricane season. So on October 25th, the HMS Bounty left New London, Connecticut, and it was headed for St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, Florida, for the winter. Well, Hurricane Sandy was out there, and so the the Bounty was heading on a, a easterly course to kind of get around the hurricane. And I don't know what happened. I read several articles to try to track this down, but the next thing I read about from the HMS Bounty, she you know she was heading east to get around the hurricane. And then the Coast Guard gets an email 
The email came from the captain of the bounty, and he was requesting assistance. And no, there there wasn't a computer on board. Um, what what I read was somehow or another the captain got a hold of uh, the the organization that owned the bounty, and uh, they they typed the email and sent the message to the coast guard. And this message went to the coast guard at about eight forty five p.m. It wasn't long after this that the bounty activated their EPIRB beacon. An EPIRB um, stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. The captain reported that the ship was taking on water and the crew was going to abandon the ship. This information was sent to a Coast Guard C-130 plane that was stationed in uh, the Raleigh-Durham airport. They, they described the location of the ship as 90 miles southeast of the Outer Banks in the vicinity of uh, a feature on the, uh, that was found on the ocean floor known as Hatteras Canyon. Well, because of the weather, visibility was pretty low. So the C-130 kept an altitude of about 500 feet, and they searched all around for the vessel. And it was found uh, just after midnight on October 29th. The ship was kind of laying over to its to one side, and so the C-130 kind of circled the area um, just to kind of keep an eye on it. Because at this time, a helicopter was heading out there from Elizabeth, Elizabeth City. At 4.45 a.m., the first mate radioed the C-130 and said that they were sinking and they needed uh, they needed help right now. And so the C-130, it flew in again and came down kind of low, and it dropped uh, some supplies and some life rafts. By this time, the C-130 was running low on fuel, so they had to abandon. Um, so they, they headed out of there, and it was about an hour later when the helicopter that came from Elizabeth City showed up. One of the rescuers was seriously injured uh, during the rescue. Um, I didn't. I don't think he died. I didn't read anything that he was. He had been killed in action. But eventually, the vice admiral reported that the ship had sunk and fourteen people had been rescued from the life rafts by two rescue helicopters. But the storm did wash two crew members overboard. Claudine Christian, who was one of the two missing, she was found and rescued by the coast guard. However, she was unresponsive when they found her, and she was later pronounced dead at the hospital. The other missing person was the captain of the ship, Robin Walbridge. They would end up searching a 12,000 square nautical mile area for Captain Walbridge, but he was never found. They suspended the search on the 1st of November, 2012. Now, an inquiry into the sinking was held in Portsmouth, Virginia. And they found that Captain Walbridge had made a decision to sail into the path of the of Hurricane Sandy. And this was the cause of the, the sinking. And they deemed his decision to be reckless. And I just, I don't understand because I had read that they were heading east, kind of going around the hurricane. Um, and I think that was documented. So I don't understand if he changed his mind and didn't make a note of it or what happened. But, um... And I didn't get a chance to go through the evidence or anything like that. I didn't even get a get it in hand. But they did conclude that he drove into the hurricane. Now, only two people died in this shipwreck. But they concluded that the reason for the loss of life was a too late decision to abandon ship. And folks, that is all I have for this episode. I know it ran a little long and uh, some of you might have to listen to it in multiple parts. But um, I wanted to try something different, and I wanted to kind of honor the, the suggestion that I had. So um, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you didn't mind the length of it too much. And if you did enjoy the show, don't forget to rate 
and subscribe, rate and review and subscribe. And uh, as far as helping podcasts, any podcast, if you can rate, review and subscribe, that's really the best way to help a podcast. And just to to say it again, because it's been an hour, if you have a suggestion for an episode, you can uh, contact me at www.thenceverythingpodcast.com backslash contact, or if you just go to the regular.com, there's a contact button right on screen. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but I admit right now I hadn't posted on Instagram and Twitter in a little while. And uh, I guess one of the last things I want to say is, uh, if you've been following the show, I, I went to Myrtle Beach um, right after Christmas, took a little vacation for myself. Well, on the way home, I stopped at Moore's Creek Battlefield, and that's a revolutionary war battle. And um, So that is probably going to be an upcoming episode eventually, but while I was there, I grabbed a, I grabbed a whole bunch of oops, brochures here, and uh, I like brochure hunting. It's like an addiction for me, but... I got brochures from all around North Carolina, and um, along with the suggestions that I have in my list right now, I have a whole handful of brochures here that can give me some ideas for future shows. So um, hopefully this is going to be a good year. Um, my main concern is that I'm going to get too busy, and eventually it's going to catch up to me, and, and I'm going to get behind and have to miss an episode, but I'm going to try to avoid that if I can. Anyway, uh, you guys have been with me long enough. Thank you for hanging in there. I'm not going to keep you any longer than I have to. And so I'll talk to you next time. The music in this episode comes from archesaudio.com and freepd.com.